Hello and welcome back to the Performance Rising podcast. Today I am uh, joined by a return guest, uh, a good friend of mine and a brilliant mind in the athletic space, Rick Cantor. Rick, welcome back. Thank you, Dr. Don. I am ecstatic to be back on and I always love uh, uh, talking with you and getting some great ideas from it. So right off the bat, let's jump into it. Rick, you're in a new role right now and I'd love for you to share with us the journey, uh, where you're at, and, and, and just the realities of your new job. So take it yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the last time we spoke, I was, uh, in a position at Longwood university in central Virginia, um, started in uh, the field of strength and conditioning. Um, and you know, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I started interning there at a Robert Morris, uh, under a guy named Todd Hammer, who was a, who's a very good mentor of mine. Um, but you know, early on, I really started focusing in on, uh, the human performance and the element of trying to uh, take individuals from one level to another. And that was really important to me. And so strength conditioning, sports performance, you know, it was very natural. And so I started in that element uh, and interned at some spots, University of Pittsburgh with Tim Bells, Kevin Yoxel at the at Auburn University with football, um, found my way back to Robert Morris for my grad assistantship and then landed at Longwood. Uh, as a part-time strength coach. Um, and over time, I was blessed uh, to have uh, people who uh, believed in me. Um, Troy Austin, who's now uh, the head fundraiser at the at Duke University with their athletics. Uh, Michelle Meadows, who uh, was my uh, recent athletic director. Um, you know, they, they really believed in me. And I think that's, that's something that a lot of people on their own journey you have to have people that, that, that step out for you, that, that give you an opportunity, um, that believe in you. And I'm blessed to say that I've had some great ones. Um, and so I spent my last year, uh, at Longwood and there was an opportunity, uh, that opened up, uh, down here at Jacksonville university to, to be the deputy athletics director and CEO for the department. And, the athletic director here, Alex Gilbert, actually worked at Longwood with me uh, previously, um, and and Alex is uh, a, you know a, a visionary within college athletics. He's he has such an, a tremendous pulse on the current state of athletics and where it's going. Um, he's phenomenal to work with, and he gave me a great opportunity to come down here and join him in really galvanizing uh, the department to to take it to the next stop uh, as modernization continues to go. Um, what we can do to set ourselves apart, to differentiate ourselves, to be the best that we can be competitively, culturally. Um, and so he uh, presented an opportunity for me that I couldn't pass up. And I uh, came down here, I had a ridiculous trans life transition, uh, started a, so, well, so my wife and I were expecting and for our first child uh, and sold, uh, sold our, our home in Virginia had our son, bought a new house down here virtually, uh, and then moved down and started a new job. So it was, uh, it's, I've gone through a tremendous life transition, but um, like I said, it's, it's been, it's a blessing. It's been great. So. so give me an overview. Let me, let me pause and go back and just say, you know, before we started recording, you and I have such rich conversations about so many things. Um, and one of them is is on this topic, which this podcast is ostensibly uh, geared towards, which is culture. Give me a sense of the culture of Jacksonville and what it feels like to you. Right. 
Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Um, what is, it was honestly one of the things that turned me on to really accepting the position and coming down here. Um, there is a, a collective buy-in to being the best you can be. And it's hard to, it, you know, it's, it sounds cliche to say that, but on my visit, when I came down, it was replicated in human to human uh, communication on every single coach that I met with, um, every single individual I met with, there was something that popped up intuitively that they didn't even realize they were saying, or that they didn't realize how they were saying it. That was like, okay, yeah, I believe I buy that. Like, I believe that that's actually authentic. Um, it was, you know, it was like how they spoke about JU. It was how they spoke about the people. And then it was the subsequent interactions that they were talking about. That's a regular thing and who they are. You know, the coaches that I, that I had the opportunity to meet with, they were very vocal about what they believe in and how they're trying to get better, how they're trying to continue to learn. Um, and that's a place that I want to be in. I want to be at a place that's always in beta right? Always trying to take um, themselves to a new level, a 2.0. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's easier said than done. I think a lot of, and we've talked about this before, a lot of programs um, will try uh, mimicry to get better. Um, they'll try to uh, essentially replicate other programs, um, but to have coaches that are trying honestly hard to to win their own daily tasks, what's in front of them at their own way is truly more authentic. And that's, that's a place I want to be. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell a brief anecdote to that. And that is when I first started coaching. So my first team, I was 18 and the team was U 14. So basically I was a senior in high school and the players on the team were sophomores that I would pass in the hall. So I had this opportunity. I took it. And uh, I think a, a former coach of mine gave me a book by Anson Dorrance, which at the time it was training soccer champions. It was one of the few books that was out. And in the book, Anson details his competitive cauldron. I don't know how familiar you are with him or not, but the point is he had a, a system of keeping score in uh, you know a plethora of games. And then those rankings really motivated the team to be competitive. So what did I say? Well, North Carolina winning national championships, my U14 soccer team, we're going to keep score. And what was missing was the cultural context. So I basically plunged this group of travel players into what I believed was the best training environment without considering where they were at. Needless to say, there was some success, but there was some definitely some missteps on my part that I had to learn from. And that is, I didn't actually connect to the authenticity of that group. And, and that's what you and I talk about a lot is the, the concept is isomorphy. And there's a lot of research out there about how athletic departments are isomorphic, meaning they basically replicate each other. One study looked at um, uh, mission statements of athletic departments. And, and there was a high percentage of, of just plagiarism. I mean, they are all saying the same thing. And so that begs the question, how do we connect to an authentic cultural ecosystem if we are trying to superimpose an external opinion of that? Right. And, and, and something that is that is being potentially replicated across the board. Um, you know, and, and some of it, 
And some of the isomorphism, right, that we talk about, uh, it probably extends off of, you know, modernization of college athletics and things that are going across the board. So you see more positions over, you see like athletic training is a good example, you know, across the board programs are, are re they're investing in rightfully so in student athlete experience and health and wellness and holistic care from that perspective. And we're doing the same. Um, and the emphasis there would then go towards, yeah, we need more staff, but there's a crossroads for something like athletic training right now, where there's not enough positions that they shouldered a burden during COVID that was um, arduous for them throughout that they didn't ask for it, but we, we relied on them and they did a phenomenal job, um, but they're burned out. So the pool of candidate now for athletic training is so limited. Um, and so there's, you know, so there's, there's um, second and third order consequences to some of that isomorphism because you know, one area does it, one school does it, and it transcends across the board. And some of it's needed and some of it you can't get away from. And then other things like you're saying, like with uh, mission statements, core values that, you know, we put up on a wall and we espouse, rightfully so, are we living it? Are we breathing it? Exactly. It's something that, that if you came into our ecosystem, it would be innate. Right. Right. And the, and the connection there to the value statements is something that's called... Um, organizational citizenship behavior, which is how do we connect behaviors to values? Because like you, I've been in dozens and dozens of athletic departments and invariably there's something on a wall. And then you ask a coach, a player, administrator, Hey, do you, do you believe in that? And they chuckle. Nah, that's just something that sounds good. So then how do we connect behaviors to those actual values to bring them to life? So is that your core values on the wall? I see behind yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Be original, put others first, foster growth, exceed expectations, and a part of the whole. What I find interesting is how are we judging? How do we assess whether or not people know it? Is it as simply as me yeah. walking down the hall and saying, yeah. "Hey, what are our values?" and testing them, or is it something a little bit more in depth? Is it the actions that people are taking, and then reminding yeah. people, "Hey, like you're displaying what our core values are." Yeah, this is, you know, uh, this is you putting others first, this, and it, and it might not be obvious, right? So it's, it's my role, especially uh, in the deputy element to make sure that within the collectiveness buy-in of our department, that I'm reminding people too, that they're displaying this, right? That these, this is who we are. Yes. I, because I work a lot in culture and you and I have talked a lot about culture. I have started to develop a feeling that culture is actually a metric and it's a metric of conformity. And that word has a lot of negative connotations. And in this case, I'm not applying that. What I'm applying to is culture is a metric of how behaviors align based on a agreed upon standard. So exceed expectations is one of the core values that I see. We can, let's, let's come up just for you. What, what's a behavior that we can attribute to that? Oh, leading up. So prime example, um, you have your own particular area. Um, there's a level of standard that would be conducive to what success would be for that standard, whether it be a quantitative or qualitative metric. Um, but, you know, with, with leading up, it assumes that, 
you're not only going to take care of the base essentials of getting that task done or being successful in that, you're going to make sure that you're going above and beyond to communicate what the game plan is to get in the game to, um, you know, go above and beyond to think what can be uh, done to make this even better than what we thought it was initially. And just for clarity's sake, could you give us a brief definition of how you define leading up? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's that ownership. You know, it's and, and, and now with with popular um, you know culture with reading. You know, it's the uh, Jocko extreme ownership yeah, element, yeah. And, and it's it's sexy and it's there. And it's it's it, it simple is when it's simple, but it's under it, you can understand it. Sim, uh, you can understand it easily. Yeah, it means something. It moves easier, right? People can assimilate to that. People can take it and actually use it. And so, even if it's just something that's hey, take extreme ownership, that's still something that helps. So even like there's a there's an individual that um used to say this uh he used to come and help out with our teams and he said if it's if it if it's corny but it works it's not corny um you know what i mean and i always thought about that being that's so true like even if it sounds but if it works who cares right um so you know for me i think leading up is is being proactive in some elements your communication um is is being confident and it's easier said than done right because yeah to some degree, you know, leadership is 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 a term that's like in, in transitioning. It's like core. It's overused and misunderstood. Yeah. Um, and there's a thousand definitions for it, but it's absent. It's absent in our cultures. It's absent. I mean, true leader. I mean, actually, vocal, you know, actual effective leadership is absent in a lot of our, in a lot of cultures in a lot of um, organizations across the board nationally. And it's what's needed to help move the needle. But how are we instilling those types of central tenets of what effective and efficient leadership is? I don't know. And that's something that we're trying to do here with bringing a more methodical approach to it with our staff, with our students yeah. across the board. What's your sense of how to do that? Well, there's um, there was a really good line I once read, and I'll paraphrase it, but essentially becoming more of yourself is the best thing you can do. Um, you know, I think part of learning leadership, and I do think that it is a skill that you learn. Um, I think it comes from your own authenticity. Yes. You have to consistently expand uh, and increase your capacity to learn within your own personal growth. Um, and that makes you more confident when you get into those positions. It also, that authenticity also blends and leads into your effectiveness to be a better communicator, um, which is really what, it, what leadership is about. It's the influence, it's the, it's the communication piece. And you could extend and name a myriad of things that lend to itself, like dedication and character and integrity. Um, but, you know, within leadership, it's, it's one human talking to another human. Um, yeah, I, I love that you said influence, and that really resonated with me. Uh, because when when dealing with these topics, like like you've pointed out, the minute you give it a definition, you eliminate other definitions. So if we just say influence, the individual can determine what that means, and it's going to be different. I mean, influence the the stereotype. Uh, in athletics, which is derived from the military first and then 
you know, uh, football, American sports, right, was the military commander persona, which A, is male. We have to recognize that. And it's loud and it's vocal and it's usually kind of demeaning. And there's kind of a hangover in the leadership scholarship about uh, redefining in the context. Now, add that to student athletes, for example. You have to look at things like gender differences, racial differences, socioeconomic, all the things. And then, but by presenting it, like you said, by presenting it as how a question, how do you influence? Just the question, I think, brings out what you want. But you have to suspend the belief that there's one single expression. Because my personal bias is always going to be what I do. So I want you to lead. In the back of my head, when I say lead, I want you to lead like me. Right. Yeah. And you have to be careful with that. Right? Yes. You know, because we're looking on through our own subjective lenses, assuming that there's an, we all make natural assumptions that we're correct, that we're right, that our ideas are the best ideas. And I think that's so there's a level of intentional curiosity that you there have you to, go. that um, I think lends itself to helping your people grow um, because they hopefully will prove you wrong, too, at times as well. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting when I talk to coaches, when I talk to student athletes and I ask, like, well, you know, what are what are you know, what is you know, great leadership look like to you? They always resort back to describing somebody in their past who was a coach, who was a teacher, who was a pastor, who was a uh, uh, some somebody that influenced them. And they are describing what they observed. They're describing the behaviors. They're just describing how that individual made them feel, right? How they, uh, what they thought about that person and, and their character and integrity and whatnot. And they, it's not, it's not corny. It's not cliche. I mean, that's how they, they learned it, right? And so when you ask them, what's really interesting is our abilities humanistically to, uh, to mimic what that is. And so let's say, for example, I'm a young coach and I was, you know, coming from a team culture that was, you know, hard-nosed, in-your-face, constantly um, intense, you know, it makes sense why when I get into a leadership position, I may mimic that because that's what I was brought up in. Right. Doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be effective. And so now we're in a spot where we have to really take score. We really need to understand what is the athlete of today saying that this is how you know, we like to receive information. This is how we'd like to um, continue to grow. It doesn't mean that we can't hold high standards. It doesn't mean that you can't also push the, push the envelope to exceed expectation, to be intentional about our growth. It doesn't mean that you can't still have that. It just means that there has to be a new avenue and create new inroads to effective yes, yes. communication to get that result and that's really at the end of it i think is honestly is assessing feedback and and i'm not saying feedback in the sense from the subjective experience of the athlete which i think we already do right we do but when i have a sit down interaction with a with a staff member or employee if i have a if i have a conversation with a student athlete i'm getting amazing amounts of feedback that most people don't really even think about it's the nonverbals. It's the yep. tonality of their responses. It's the pauses. You know, all of that's feedback that gives you a greater sense to make and, and essentially come to 
not only say conclusions because you're always assessing, but it gives you more perspective to go off of and to help hopefully lead more effectively in the next situation, like waypoints of leadership. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And on this front, my perspective radically shifted when I took two courses, coaching courses with FC Barcelona, one of the biggest soccer clubs in the world. When I got into their soup and saw what they did, the general outline is called biopsychosocial coaching, which is to say, we're going to include biology, psychology, and sociology. They, they expand it, but that's the root of it. And you can look that up. Yeah. But on the, on the, the idea of feedback, first of all, and I'm specifically looking at developmental levels. I'm not necessarily looking at a first team professional level. There's going to be, it's going to be different, right? There's higher expectations, but at a developmental level of which I would put college in number one, their coaches don't talk. And that's not to say they don't communicate. They, they definitely give instruction, but they are not there to critique performance. They're there to observe performance and they're there to ask questions of why, but not in the condescension of why, but in the why of, Hey, why did you do that that way? So they, they suspend the idea that there's a standard. But getting back to feedback, in a and again, I'm referencing a team sport, but in a team sport, there's feedback in everything you do, how you play, how you interact with your teammates, how you interact with a particular exercise, how you interact with an opponent, what in the environment is causing you to behave differently. And from a coaching standpoint, that's where my attention goes. What is in the environment that is eliciting behavior? So let's take that backwards. If you're in our co if you're in a team setting, neg negativity, right? Uh, the team is not uh, gelling. They're they're not supportive of each other. That begs the question: What in the environment is providing those cues to those individuals to take? So it's environmental, yeah. and and that that was a massive shift for me. And I think you're you're saying the same thing, which is the the movement here is towards an environmental understanding yeah and I, I think it's multifaceted right so like the bio psychosocial model is innately um, interdependent right mm. they're not mutually exclusive mm -hmm. if exactly. i if i come into uh, your ecosystem your environment today um, well, actually, I take that back. Let me, let me, I like to use this example. Uh, when I'm driving to work in the morning and I might have a smile on my face, the sun is shining, birds are chirping, and you cut me off. The, the innate, the, the, it tends to be the, the default response is one of my fingers goes up in the air, right? Your, your <laughs> yeah. index finger. Yeah. You're just, yeah, yeah, up yeah, to yeah, the yeah. Sky. yeah. But, th but that's an impulse and that's, yeah. That's the, that's the communication loop that goes through. You cut me off, so something happens, there's cause and effect. And internally, I think uh, uh, Sapolsky talks about this in Why Zebras uh, Don't Get Ulcers, um, is my blood pressure goes up, yep. right? My anxiety goes up, my angst. And that could have subsequent effects to the first meeting I'm in, which could put me in a bad state, which then sets me up to tune to the next meeting. And so it's not like... That you can look at it from a bio lens, you can look, you know, biological uh, basis, you can look at it from a psychological basis or a social element to it, but they're all interconnected. So in that same fashion, 
let's just say instead of me cutting you off, I'm an individual that comes in and I'm, I display nothing but dissonant leadership habits. Things like demeaning the human being, belittling, um, accusatory language, uh, difficult tonality, right? If I do that and I do it on a regular basis, I would be naive to think that I'm not having a biological impact on the human being. And that's what I think a lot of people don't get, especially in leadership, is not just black and white X's and O's. Mm -hmm. There is a human physiological response to leadership that we don't put enough emphasis on. Totally. You know, that, that you have to also understand can either empower, enrich, and get people to move in a certain direction or can withdraw them and put them in higher states of anxiety that can that put them into higher states of um, potentially down the line, even depression, which we see with, uh, with athletes at, at various uh, places. So, so that, that, that's something that I think needs to be talked about too and explored because I think that is something that needs to be unpacked more in leadership development. Yes, and, and again, we can go back to one of the topics we, we touched on before we started and that's fear. And, and I have to say, I would say 90% of the workshops I do with teams, somehow we get to fear because the effects of fear on the body, right? Talk about biopsychosocial and the way that it changes the brain and changes the body and athletics in general are, is, is just, is full of fear. It's fear of performance. Uh, fear of not performing to the level that you think you should uh, fear that you are playing. Uh, you're not going to play uh, or you're not going to have a chance. It's the identity uh, fear of losing fear of a coach, the coach's fear of a player, et cetera. So uh, yeah, I just would love to expand there in how you see the fear element connecting to the, the biopsychosocial. Yeah. Well, I mean, fear is a, is a feeling, right? Um, and feelings are like the weather. Some days it's sunny, some days is a hurricane. But that's objective, right? How we change and how we adapt to that is off the clothing that we put on, how we prepare. Yeah. Um, you know, there are days that, you know, there's a great quote, it's uh, Colin Powell. It's like, some days you can't slay the dragon every day, some, some days the dragon wins. Yeah. Uh, that's inevitable. Like we're going to have ebbs and flows to it. And within fear, I think it really depends on if you're trying to leverage it in your own influence and leadership um, to not manipulate, but control an individual. Mm -hmm. what, I mean by, what I mean by that, because that's a, that's a, it's a situation that could evolve into something that's a lot worse. And that's leveraging coercive power within your own dynamic of your group um, and the negatives that can ascend from that. Right. And, the, and, you know, it's a natural thing, I think, to go with because it's it's easier to control people when they're afraid. Because they're trying to find comfort. Right. We're trying to get back to homeostasis. Right. Through approval. Comfort, right. Mm -hmm. And so but there is a balance to it. Right. Because you still need to have some form of conflict. Yes. You still need to have some form of, of um, challenge. Agitation. Yep. Yeah. I mean, 
what would the 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 hero arc what would that be without the right. challenge right? right you have to have that so it's not like we're living in pleasantville right you've ever seen the movie pleasantville it's not that's not that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we make it as constructive as possible and get people that are willing to take feedback that are willing to step into discomfort, discomfort, um, and become more authentically themselves and be comfortable with that. Um, I think, you know, that's the challenge and it's a challenge everybody has every day they wake up. To that point, if we accept teams and individuals as complex, complex adaptive systems, like uh, a flock of starlings or a school of fish, then theory dictates that those systems are most optimized the closer they get to chaos, which is to say that it goes back to the idea of agitation, that if you want to optimize performance, you do need to be in a state of agitation. I'm not going to put a negative connotation or a positive connotation, but but rather there needs to be a disruption so that you reorganize yourself into a new right. form. Right. That doesn't just happen with complacency. And on both ends of the spectrum, complacency exists. If you're too scared, you're frozen. If you're too satisfied, maybe that's the wrong word, but if you're too content, yeah. right, right, you're stagnant. So there needs to be a balance of there is safety and uh, kindness. Um, we're going to embrace an individual. They want to feel part of a community that's supportive. And within that supportive community, there is an intentional movement towards disruption or agitation or challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that balance because that hasn't, that need or that model or however you want to, the paradigm essentially you just described, that hasn't, what's changed is the, the way the current generation receives information and how they like to receive information and the, you know, external factors that, you know, we have now, like I didn't grow up with a cell phone as yep. an additional appendage. Now everybody does, right? There's, you, you know, I didn't grow up with, you know, I didn't have to worry about tweets and Facebook and Instagram when I was growing up. Now everybody does. So there's external factors that I think change the system. But, you know, the fact that, yes, you, you need to have some form of disruption in order to take yourself from A to B, whatever B is, whether it's a physical skill, whether it's your own personal growth, uh, professional development, whatever it is there's still a necessity there. How you get that individual there in that sweet spot, in that flow state, I think is the, the differentiator, right? And yes. some, some people are more effective at getting those people to, uh, in that place than others. Again, let's go back to one of the topics we, we touched on before we started recording, and that's social emotional realities of learning right now. And I was mentioning that, you know, in my experience, we are living in a time of where social emotional aspects of learning competing are absolutely paramount long overdue, but it's, it is a, it's a shift, right? It's, it's a paradigm shift away from a model that prioritized top-down leadership, coach centric coach is always right to one where we've acknowledged and identified that it's not okay to have negative environments where 
kids primarily feel bad or unsafe or scared. And so I'd love to hear your riff on how you see social emotional, the social emotional elements really shifting the modern interpretation of coaching. Yeah, I mean, with, you know, and, and it's one thing that you know, we espouse is the, the four tenets of emotional intelligence a lot. You know, we, we push it out and uh, how you display that. And that's, you know, the self-awareness piece, the self-regulation, social awareness of, of emotions within your group, and then the relationship management piece and building more authentic relationships with people that you're with and that you're trying to lead. You know, over time, I don't know if it's ever if it's necessarily changed or that now we're recognizing the piece that emotional tone, um, how people receive information with the current student athlete is really important and how we go about doing that. Um, and, you know, like I said before, coaches have coaches, leaders, managers, whatever you want to say, we, we set goals. We have, we have, marks that we're trying to hit we have uh you know championships we're trying to win we have um quarterlies that we're trying to make and at the same time you know we have to think that okay of course we'd be naive to think we don't have a different human being now than we did 10 years five years ago 10 years ago 15 years ago that we're leading and on top of that if you want to throw in the, the, the paradigm of Maslow's hierarchy of needs into that, right? Mm -hmm. Then we all also have different needs. And so it's extremely complex when you're yes. thinking about it from how do we make it the most effective environment as possible when you're taking all these different things and throwing it into one. But you know, there's, a good, there's a pretty good book called Rework. And the, one of the big things I took away from that book was you know, what is going to be true 30 years from now that's, all, that's still true today? You know, what's not going to change? And humanistic need, understanding, empathy, displaying these, getting comfort um, in growing these types of habits in our own leadership abilities and our own ability to impact another human uh, being, that need is going to be there in 30, 40, 50 years. And I'm, I'm not one personally that I like to, to say things um, are certain, right? I'm very much a skeptic at a lot of things. I tend not to have an opinion on that stuff, but I find it really hard to believe that even with the technological advances that we have, even with the innate passive communication that we tend to have in our own environments these days, I find it hard to believe that human-to-human -human interaction, human-to-human -human connection and leveraging that and buying into that is not going to still be a necessity and a need in all elements, whether it be sports, politics, uh, you know, education, whatever, healthcare, whatever it is in 30 or 40 years. Well, I agree completely. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, as a thought experiment, if you could wave the proverbial magic wand, how would you optimize that in an athletic department? For example, what are activities, behaviors, events, that you see could really use that as a building block for success. Right. Well, I think you, I think, and I'm not saying that we, we necessarily, I think we are trying to do this is, is building more inroads to having an open channel with our student athletes um, and opening dialogue. I think today's student athlete, today's student, today's teenager, 
um, is craving human connection, yeah. is craving human interaction more so than maybe is displayed from things like constantly texting and, and social media and whatnot. I think that's still there. Uh, but I also say too that, you know, as we continually try to find ways to disrupt, but do so in an effective way. And when I say effective, we're assessing it off of the feedback we're getting, right? Mm -hmm. um, that we're not pushing them to the extreme, but we're not keeping them where they are. We're not keeping them in complacency or keeping them stale. Um, I think you probably, how do you build that over time? Putting them in positions where they're okay to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, while you do that, validating them for being who they are, helping them validate themselves so that, you know, they're accepting it. I think that that in and of itself helps them figure more so about who they are, which in turn helps their own personal and professional growth. That moment. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I would also add in my experience that also needs to be provided to coaches yeah. because coaches are humans with their own insecurities and ultimately the sense of you know wanting to belong or feel accepted is 100 percent part of that reality yeah well and I'd, I'd extend that too to not just coaches but staff members. there we go yeah you create a university, people outside of the university and our greater community, our leaders uh, politically. You know, I think it, if anything, it, it makes you a more effective leader because you have a great understanding. You leverage the components of, of and the benefit of being more empathetic. You leverage yes, the components yes. of being more understanding. And it might sound soft, right, from the old, yeah. the old, um, the old age time of thinking about that. Uh, but that's that's just as uh, naive as the the holes that we see in like great man theory mm -hmm. from leadership. It's it's just that you know that that we think that oh it's you know it just you know historically it was just, it's just that one individual and that it's not capable that, that everybody else isn't capable of also uh, leveraging their own human potential through whether it be through leadership or other avenues like it's you know so yeah well certainly there's a lot to unpack when you wave the magic wand yeah um i do i do a quick pivot here because you mentioned earlier uh thinking about analysis and you talked about uh, qualitative and quantitative and i know the qualitative area is something that's intriguing to you and i'm, I'm wondering if you Kind of dive into that for us and just yeah. you know express your thoughts about where you see that well what i thought was was interesting what you said earlier was culture as a as a metric mm -hmm. and a lot of that right right is all qualitative based yep 100 right so one of the things that i've been lately thinking about is um within the hiring process over time uh is thinking about how you can leverage qualitative research like coding yep. off of interviews and trying to find commonality with what you're trying with what an organization um, is trying to find uh, for their most successful ideal candidate with the candidate pool that you have uh, and kind of almost cross comparing the two. 
Um, and so lately that's been kind of in the back of my head with thinking how can we leverage coding of qualitative research with what ideally it would be the most successful candidate for various positions. And I mean, you could do that for coaches, you could do it for staff, you could yep. do it for administrator, high, uh, senior level administrators. Um, but I find that lately to be pretty interesting uh, because how that lends itself into when we talk about, even if you'd say, okay, well, culture is a metric. Well, if that's the case, then I think it's natural for us to then go into the next layer of it. Well, what's a good culture? What's a bad culture? And that's really simplistic in how we look at it. But there are probably trends and commonalities that we see in things that are effective cultures that we would ideally want to uh, find when we look at the rare find, the, the potential candidate we have for a position that we think could really galvanize that effective culture that we have. And so how do we pinpoint what some of those things are? And so that for over time, maybe we have a higher probability of success mm -hmm. with our candidates, with the people that we're trying to, to garner, to get over here, to join our, our, our tribe, so to speak. Yeah. So, so real quick, a very simplistic definition for those who are not nerdy about this stuff. So diagnostic in general deals with numbers. How do you interpret numbers? So taking a survey, uh, employee satisfaction assessment on a scale of one to five, what, what do you think? Well, five, four, three, two, one, that would be uh, quantitative because it's a, it's a measurement using numbers. Qualitative in general uses language as the data source. So in terms of qualitative interviewing, you interview a candidate and you're recording what they say, and then you're finding within what they say patterns, um, references that you then extrapolate to add to the to be the data. So to switch quickly to OD, my bread and butter is dialogic OD, which is which is not oppositional but different from diagnostic OD. Right? Diagnostic is using the numbers like a doctor. I'm going to come in, evaluate you, and prescribe. Dialogic says that reality is, is symbolic and it's co-created. And to understand it, you need to get the language or symbolic information from your group and then interpret it together. So an easy way I do this, draw a picture of what you think this team is right now. Draw a picture of what you think this team's gonna be. Then let's put all the pictures together and look for themes. Easy. How do you see the qualitative aspect, like if you had to create the interview process, you know, kind of walk me through what you think that could be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to start with the end of mind, right? Instead mm -hmm. of Howard, start with the end of mind. Um, and with that, I think we would need to really unpack to see what are we trying? Who One, who are we? Mm -hmm. um, what is and what isn't effective? What are we trying to find? Um, what characteristics? And then on top of that, what are probably the soft skills of leadership? What are the soft skills of communication that we're trying to find within that? Um, and then, of course, and then later on, right, the hard skills of the job, the specifics of what we're trying to find. Um, I think that would be probably some of the starting points. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, how do you assess that? If I said that it's really important within our culture that we have somebody who has very much a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Who, you know, is, is constantly trying to evolve, who doesn't have self-limiting beliefs within their mm -hmm. own personal growth. When I mean by that, not to be vague, but 
who is consistently trying to get better and doesn't have a limiting belief to think that they can't get better. Um, you know, that might be something that I might think like, that's, that's the type of individual, like somebody who has a growth mindset that displays right, that right. is really important. I would then say, okay, well, I need to figure out how am I going to code that within the, within the interview? How am I going to assess that? And so that then peels me back the onion back further to how am I going to assess that? Well, what kind of question am I going to ask? Right. Am I going to, am I going to ask for a scenario? Um, am I going to be really particular? How am I going to be particular really um, with trying to figure out whether or not this individual is consistent with this? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more to it. I think that we would probably, that we need to do. And it's tough, right? Cause the timing of the year, like we're doing a hiring right now, but we haven't done the mental work behind that. Yeah. And it could be easy to just fill the hole, fill the gap, right? Have a generalized job description, just go yep. through it. Yep. Have you think, bam, 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 go through it. And that's, that's understandable too, because you know, the, the machine doesn't stop. We, we're, we're still going. Right. But if we can do more of the mental preparation behind it and have more of an understanding on why we ask what questions. Yes. Right. And find a little bit more over time, because it's not going to be an overnight thing. Like you're going to have to look longitudinally with, you know, various candidates and, and increasing your uh, candidate pool to try to find and peel out some of these trends and commonalities. And the thing that comes across in my head is, you know, I was doing a, uh, coaching search a few years back and what I found when it was really interesting is I had a set of questions and I was going through them and all the candidates were pretty much describing and saying the same thing and it sounded more like the company lied and so I was trying to figure out myself like what's really differentiating mm-hmm. that if I'm having these questions that everybody is really kind of saying almost as if you almost know that they're going to say certain things about culture, about yeah, the program yeah. or about how they would do it, then like, how am I really going to figure out in uh, somehow what's going to give me the best probability of making the right decision? So, yeah, I love it. Uh, what you're describing is itself a dialogic process, which is for you to sit and think about, the questions you want to ask and, you know, connecting with other people on a committee or on staff that forces you to ask questions as why do I think this, or why do I prioritize this question? Uh, That is really rich feedback. Go back to feedback. Right. Uh, So then as you go into an interview with that mindset, you have a better understanding of why you ask it and therefore are able to perhaps have Uh, a greater sense of openness to how other people interpret it. Uh, I love it, man. When you figure it out, come back and give us the secret. Well, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever figure it out, but I will say I'm probably, I'm probably pretty certain that there's probably already companies that do this. There are probably already companies that um, have uh, this type of stuff. It's just that in my current situation, Right. Where I currently am, this is how I'm trying to figure out how we get ourselves better. Yeah. And I think that's all you, you know, it's all you can do is make, just try to get better every single day in the place where you're at, where your feet are, being in, being where your feet are and uh, trying to push yourself to get better. I think some, I think it's easier for some than others, but, um, but it's part of the process as it gives me fulfillment. And that's certainly the ethos of athletics. 
Yes. So it's kind of part and parcel of that whole thing. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you dealer's choice. What should we talk about uh, next? Because, you know, so many ideas that come up and I'm just curious where, where you are. Yeah. Um, well, I think for the, uh, the next stop um, down the line, you know, for me, I think there's so many different avenues with college athletics um, that we, uh, we can get into. I think with the, the onset of uh, name image likeness with um, where the NCLA is uh, put forward and, and shifting the emphasis and, and across the board with college and athletic departments, shifting a lot more emphasis with health and wellness, particularly within the mental health realm, um, I think is, you know, another area that, um, but I look forward to popping on again to kind of really expand into some of these realms um, because it's it's really it's pretty incredible the amount of change that has that has happened um, within uh, college athletics in a short amount of time uh, I think it's, it's really unbelievable um, the amount of change and it's almost too fast like there's so much change and it's happening at such a fast pace that it's challenging athletic departments to have to change at that pace and it's yeah. uncomfortable right yes it's uncomfortable and there's a lot of ambiguity it's a VUCA. there's volatility uncertainty yes ambiguity and so you're having to figure out who you are you're having to figure out how you're keeping uh the main thing the main thing going through this intersection of constant ambiguity and complexity and uncertainty so well, that's the good thing about this medium. We can come back as many times as you'd like. Um, time is what it is, and I know you have to go. So, Rick, I just want to thank you sincerely. Uh, congratulations on your new position. And uh, I really, I always enjoy talking to you. I think you're you're brilliant and um, such a, an amazing mind to be in the athletic space. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Dr. Gunn. It's uh, always a phenomenal opportunity to come on and speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Performance Rising podcast. If you like what you heard, you can check us out online at performancerising.org or on Instagram at performance underscore rising.